Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a platform that is solving the talent crisis across the life sciences industry by democratizing access to the world's best expertise in order to accelerate the development of new therapies. I'm very excited to welcome Barry Tico, Chief Medical Officer of Stoke Therapeutics. Thanks so much for joining us today, Barry. Thanks, Rahul. It's a pleasure to be here. So to start off, Barry, please provide us some background on your career and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, thanks for giving me the opportunity to introduce myself and to talk to your audience. My background, I'm a clinician. I'm a pediatric cardiologist by training. I have a PhD in biochemistry, molecular biology, all from the University of Chicago. And then I uh, was set on an academic career. I had a staff position at Mass General Hospital and a position at Harvard Medical School and was studying zebrafish at the same time that I had a clinical appointment and had my mindset that I was going to go the full academic route. Then I started thinking, well, how do I use my scientific background, my clinical background to really combine into the most productive way that I could think of for helping as many patients as I could. And to me, that pointed me more in the direction of biopharmaceuticals and especially this field of translational medicine that allows us to understand data that are coming out of the lab and how to apply those directly to potential medicines for people. So given that and the fact that I had several trusted friends who were already in the biopharmaceutical field and and were inviting me to make that leap, I said, well, where's the best place that I could learn how to develop medicines? And at the time, Merck was the place to go. So I left academia, joined Merck in their clinical pharmacology group, had a great experience there learning what it took to test medicines early in, in the development process. That was in Rahway, New Jersey, and my family said, we prefer to be in Boston. And of course, to, for at the time, and still even more so now, Boston is, of course, the mecca for biotech. So it was an easy step for me. And Biogen at the time was looking to build a cardiovascular franchise and looking for people to experience. So I joined Biogen. I was there for quite a while, 13 years, and learned quite a bit about from Biogen about how to focus on patients how to let data drive decisions, and how to be flexible in one's career. Because I started there in cardiology. I ended up doing mostly neurology. I was running the Tysabri multiple sclerosis program, which is really right now the the most effective medicine for multiple sclerosis. And then I ended up as the program executive for the Aducanumab program for the Alzheimer's program there. So I had quite a trajectory within Biogen. And as I said, that really taught me that one has to have quite a bit of flexibility in where one wants to go within a career. And then after that time at Biogen, I decided partially I wanted to go back into cardiovascular and I wanted to try something different. So I went to Pfizer. I was in their search and evaluate unit called External R&D Innovation, working with the cardiovascular metabolic research unit. And there I had a chance to review close to a thousand different opportunities. And that was quite a great experience for me, plus learning how Pfizer operates. And along the way, part of what I brought into Pfizer were several RNA-related medicines, and that got me interested in RNA as a therapeutic. So at that time, Stefan Badsell, who is still CEO at Moderna, and I got together and he recruited me in 
to run the cardiovascular and metabolic R&D unit at Moderna. I had a great experience there. I saw that Moderna, among other things, was a great opportunity for someone who was interested in vaccines and vaccines had a great future in Moderna. So along the way, my wife, who happens to be a vaccine developer as well, I got her to join the company and she actually is now running the phase three program for the COVID vaccine. And then um, along the way, I learned about Stoke, which was a new company trying to do something very different in the splicing arena, a very new approach to RNA. And so four years ago, I joined Stoke. And at the time, Ed Kay, who was the CEO, and I joined about the same time. Company was 10 people when we joined and private. And since then, uh, we're now 100 people and public, and we have program one already in the clinic and program two about to be announced. Wonderful, Barry. Thanks for that background. Given all of your experience in the RNA space, it'd be great if you could provide our audience a primer on what RNA therapeutics are and their potential. So RNA has come a long way. I, it's, at one point, was never really even thought of as a potential for a therapeutic, and now there are multiple modalities. There, of course, are antisense oligonucleotides, which is what Soak is using, but there are also RNA interference and antisense that's being used to reduce RNA and protein levels in the cell. There, of course, is, is now mRNA, which has been made famous by, by Moderna, especially in BioNTech, Pfizer for vaccines, and that, that has a very promising future as well. There are other ways that mRNA is being used as therapeutics, both for cancer as well as potentially for rare diseases. And, and that's still quite a bit earlier in development and has several challenges, but has a potential in the future to be expanded. But the main focus that, that we have at Stoke is on antisense RNA and especially focus on splicing. And overall, you know, the RNA field has expanded to the point right now where there are 500 different therapies that are in different stages of development. And that's just in the past five or seven years that that has exploded in terms of its interest. There are, of course, now more than a dozen RNA medicines that have been approved. And so that's just the beginning. But the future for RNA medicines has multiple modalities going forward and multiple different approaches. And are there particular applications or therapeutic areas where you think there's a lot of untapped potential as it relates to RNA-based therapeutics? One way of the future certainly is to use mRNA to deliver gene editing proteins, especially the Cas CRISPR proteins. I think that the mRNA offers an ideal way to deliver those because gene editing enzymes, one really wants them around for just a short time to be able to edit the specific gene of interest with the guide RNA and then go away and not have an expanded effect within the body. So mRNA does it perfectly because it allows for expression of a protein for 48 hours or so, and then it goes away. That for me certainly is a way that messenger RNA is going to be developed in the future to help really expand our gene editing capability, especially potentially for base editing. Great. So with that background, let's talk about the work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Stoke. Yes. So as I mentioned, um, Stoke has been around now. We started uh, about seven years ago. We originated out of Adrian Craner's lab at Cold Spring Harbor. And the company itself is an RNA medicines company that focuses on severe diseases 
and upregulates protein, especially using a focus on splicing. So that's where our expertise has been developed on how to maneuver the splicing apparatus of the cell to allow for increase of RNA levels in the cell, which then allows for increase of protein levels. And there are quite a few diseases that would be benefiting from an increase in protein. You know, quite a bit of the antisense approach right now is to downregulate protein levels. And that's where the field has really spent most of the effort. But to increase RNA levels and protein levels is, is a more challenging effort. We've especially focused right now on diseases where there's what's called a haploinsufficiency. So diseases that are especially autosomal dominant diseases where there's a normal copy of a gene and a mutated copy that causes a loss of function. So there's only half the normal amount of protein in the cell. And using our technique to manipulate the splicing mechanism, we can then change what is unproductive mRNA in the cell into a productive form, which allows for more protein to be made. There are other diseases that are not haploinsufficient diseases, uh, but could benefit from increasing protein levels as well. Those are some pathway targets where there are diseases where, as as the normal course of aging or as the normal course of the disease, there is less of a protein, and we could target that as well and increase protein levels in those cells. The advantage that we have using our approach is, first of all, we can increase protein levels in a cell only in those cells that are intending to make that protein because the messenger RNA has to be there. So the cell already has to intend to be making that protein. So by targeting that messenger RNA, we know that we are going to express an increased protein only in the cell that's supposed to have that protein and not express it the way sometimes, for instance, with a gene therapy or a vector delivery, there can be expression of proteins in cells that are not supposed to be making that protein. So that's a great advantage that we have. Another is that by modulating the amount of oligonucleotide that we deliver the cell, we can control the amount of increase in protein. And then finally, because we can deliver locally, so for brain diseases, which we're focused on especially, we can deliver the oligonucleotide specifically into the spinal fluid and deliver just to the brain. So we avoid some of the systemic effects that can happen from any medicine that's given to the whole body rather than to the area that it's needed the most. The lead program for Stoke right now is for the treatment of a disease called Dravet syndrome. It's one of the most common genetic forms of epilepsy, and it is due to the haploinsufficiency of a protein called NAV1.1. It is a sodium channel subunit, and it's really a devastating disease. The disease appears in children in the first year of life, and they go on to have intractable seizures. 90% of them do not have their seizures controlled. They also have severe cognitive effects such that by after wage one or two, many of the children do not advance cognitively and they continue to have difficulty communicating and caring for themselves as they reach into teenage and adult years. They develop difficulty with balance and walking and they all end up in wheelchairs. And, and most devastating, one out of five of them die before they reach their teenage years. We've developed our medicine, we call it now SDK001, which can selectively increase the NAV1.1 levels. And as we've shown already in multiple animal studies, we can restore the NAV1.1 levels, that sodium channel subunit, back up to its normal levels. And that is then focusing on the biology of the disease. We know exactly what the genetic 
cause of the diseases and we know how to correct it. And so that's in contrast to many of the anti-seizure medications right now that are available that really do not address the actual genetic cause of the disease. We've now advanced into clinical testing. We have this time four clinical studies ongoing in patients with Dravet syndrome. We have had a recent release of some interim data from a single ascending and multiple ascending dose study where we showed that SDK001, when given intrathecally directly into the spinal fluid, is well tolerated and there are no safety concerns that were identified. We've shown that it can distribute to the brain as we expect and it can be taken up into brain cells and can have a long time that it lasts in the brain cells, which will allow for infrequent dosing. And we also had some preliminary data showing that in the first 11 patients that we looked at, eight of them had reductions in their seizures with even a single treatment at a relatively low dose. So very early but promising signs of efficacy at this stage for us. Great, Barry. Thank you. That's very exciting work. I'm curious, given you know, all of your experience across a range of companies from you know, big pharma to high growth biotechs to a startup, if you've reflected on what you took from each experience and how you've applied that to Stoke. Yeah, one of the, the key learnings is the focus on the patient and listening to the patient. We traditionally have not included patients as one of the inputs that we used to use for how to design our clinical trials. But now we routinely will go to families and patients and get their input very early on, on what is their need? What do they see as the impact of their disease and what is most important for them, for us to solve for them? So really seeing the world through the eyes of the patient and gaining insight into their hopes and their fears. That's really what we need to do more of. And certainly, as I'm progressing in my career, learning that that's very important. But also learning that we have partnerships with multiple stakeholders. The patients are one of them. I I call it the three Ps. Patients are certainly one of them. Physicians and clinicians and, and healthcare personnel are important. And then payers are the third P. So those are our important stakeholders that we have to be in touch with early on, listen to, get input from, and design our plans based on their advice. Great. Thanks for sharing those learnings across your storied career. Now, switching topics a bit and thinking about where our industry is headed, you and I talked a little bit about target selection and why certain drugs, when they're on the market, don't do as well as predicted, both from a efficacy as well as you know patient penetration or market penetration perspective. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the challenges there and how we could potentially improve over the next several decades as it relates to that. Yeah, it's very important for us as an industry. Uh, The current data are that somewhere around 40% of all medicines do not actually serve patients as well as they were expected to. And there are a variety of reasons that happens. Of course, one is that, that there's a safety issue that comes up that's unexpected and that we can never always plan for, although we do as much testing as we can in advance. Another is that sometimes uh, we don't really make medicines that are that different from what's currently available. And that goes back to, again, listening to the patient voice. Sometimes we think that we've made a great advance. We're giving a medicine now that that only needs to be taken every three months instead of every two months. And 
that differentiation is not really enough to make physicians or patients or even payers say that, that this is something that's worth pursuing and changing their patterns for. So that's very important. And then we also have to acknowledge that these days, just getting a medicine approved is no longer sufficient. We also have to be providing the information that will allow for that medicine to be reimbursed. And so we have to make sure that we obtain a favorable reimbursement status for our medicines. And that takes planning already very early on. So those are some of the key things that we have to focus on. But also part of that is picking the right targets. And and that goes back to the biology. And that's an advantage that we have at Stoke, certainly, is that we can pick a disease where we know the biology is. We know that there's only half the amount of protein that's being made for a genetic reason. We know that we have to double that amount of protein to address the disease. And so the biology is very well laid out and the targets that we need to focus on are right there. So that gets to a a point of being able to personalize our medicines more, whether we personalize it based on, on somebody's genetics or personalize it based on some other testing that we do. We need to be able to target our medicines as best as possible to a specific patient to be able to provide exactly what they need and what would help them for their disease. Great, Barry. And you know, over the last 19 months or so, the pandemic has changed how our industry operates and hopefully evolved how R&D gets done. I'm curious what you think are perhaps some of the silver linings of the pandemic in terms of the changes that you have observed that you hope stay well past the pandemic. One change, of course, is that we've learned to work together virtually rather than being in in person, and that has allowed us to connect with people from all over the world and have a broader sense of partnership and be able to bring in new voices, both from the patient, but also from our physician colleagues, as well as the service providers who give us their perspective from all over the world. So I think that's certainly been an advantage to be able to incorporate in a video context, which is very important, new voices and a more diverse input. And I think that we've also been able to, from a clinical trial perspective, see that we can start to collect data that is more decentralized. And that means not having to have patients and their families come into an office always or into a clinic in order to be able to participate in a trial. So remote data capture is important. But I think that we may have swung the pendulum a little bit too quickly in that direction before we've taken into account all the trade-offs that we have there. Because although these digital technologies and wearable technologies and the different ways that we're collecting these data are going to be helpful, we have to realize that implementing them is a cost to that. So it it actually does add to the cost of our clinical trials. It, It does add to the startup time. So it does mean that we have to have more in advance to put all these systems into place. And we also have to have a means to be able to interpret all this data. We're now getting millions, even billions of data points on patients. If you consider that every heartbeat that we collect on a patient is a data point now, and we're collecting heartbeats in some patients 24 hours a day, those can be helpful for us, but they can also potentially be unused information. So we have to 
implemented technologies that will allow us to interpret all of that data and, and use those data in an interpretation-friendly way rather than just have now reams of data that cannot be used for a better understanding of our medicine and what's going to help the patient. And perhaps, you know, adjacently related to the impact that the pandemic has had, although this has been going on for some time now, is that we're in the midst of a talent crisis in our industry. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what you think led us to this point and the current talent crunch, as well as what you think we need to do over the next several years to course correct. Yeah, certainly the need for talent has been heightened recently. I think it's overall really a positive thing. It means that as a field, biopharma are increasing our number of medicines that we're testing, increasing the number of trials that we're doing, increasing the number of patients that we are including in our trials, and incorporating new technologies. And all that expansion is fantastic for patients and healthcare overall. But as you said, the potential downside of that is that we need more and more talent to be able to run all of that from everything from, of course, our clinical operations and our clinical development side, but from the regulatory side, from data management, but also on the commercial side, the preclinical side, the toxicology, all the different parts of our industry are booming. And so we have to now make sure that we are putting into place the infrastructure that will allow us, as we plan for the future, to be able to get access to talented individuals, highly skilled life science professionals who can help us to move all those medicines forward as we plan, because we we have so many promising medicines that are in the pipeline right now. And it would certainly be a shame if what held us up was that we didn't have enough skilled people to be able to bring all those medicines to the patients. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, uh, as I said, we need to put in place the infrastructure. And to me, what that means is starting already, even at the high school, even pre-high school level, to get more people interested in science. And this is important in the U.S., of course, but globally, we need to get more and more people interested in science as a career, help them understand what are the opportunities for them. To some degree, as you were asking about a silver lining of the pandemic, one of the things is that people realize that vaccines or medicines and the development of those, the discovery of those and, and bringing those to help billions of people is very rewarding, very exciting, and and really interesting as well. We have to be able to build on that. So one area that we need to focus on really is getting science interest among students. And one important way that I've been able to help do that is through the Museum of Science in Boston that has many programs, outreach programs going beyond the museum, but also trying to increase the diversity of the audience who come into the museum, as well as trying to build exhibits and information that are timely and presented in a very inviting way to keep the interest of our youth and students in this. You know, we we have right now students who are distracted by many, many different things. And so getting the focus on science is a challenge. But the Museum of Science has been able to do that successfully. And and there are many other ways that we can do that. But we have to start 
very early in already training the workforce and the individuals who are going to become our colleagues in the future. And that requires advanced planning and it requires extra resources at multiple different levels. Yeah, very much agree with that, Barry. Given all of your experiences across academia and the life sciences sector, and this is for primarily our younger listeners, what's one piece of advice you would provide your younger self? Well, it's something that I I feel strongly about is to follow one's passion. And that gets said in, in many different ways. But for me, what I really was looking for was a way to use the fascination of biology, the fascination of how does the body work? When you think about the fact that you and I can talk to each other, the fact that the heart is pumping. And to me, what was fascinating was that the heart starts from four cells. There are four little cells that start out and they make this tube that folds upon itself and builds into a beating heart that supplies blood to the whole body. And the way the brain is formed and all the connections that have to be made there, it's just fascinating how all that happens. And there's so much that we still need to learn. But for me, that fascination really drove me to want to understand more and then also to figure out when things go wrong, how can we try to fix them? And so following that passion all the way through, whether it meant going into a more scientific part of medicine into a laboratory or whether it meant going into biopharmaceuticals and trying to figure out how to make medicines that that will help people. All that for me was driven by my passion and my interest in the human body and, and biology. So to me, I would say, find your interest and you may have to try many different things. And that's what I encourage people early on to do is not go on a set path and just expect to go in one direction. Go in many different directions, try many things. At some point, you'll find something that truly makes you feel different, makes you say, oh, I'm really interested in that. That that could be something that I would like to do my whole life and follow that passion. To me, that will always set you straight. When you're doing something that, that you are interested in, then it makes all the other parts of that job much easier to tolerate. With that salient advice, Barry, it was a real pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for joining us and for sharing your insights with our audience. Of course, Rahul. I appreciate the opportunity and I wish you the best with Clora and with this podcast. And uh, hopefully we will have a chance to talk again in the future. Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Barry. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.